welcome to Engage and Equip, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Hannah. I'm on staff here at High Point Church, and today I'm joined by our lead pastor, Nick Gibson. Hey, guys. So today's episode, we'll be doing an AMA covering the Ask Me Anything questions. Um, just a note on this, if you submitted a question in December or for the January 2nd sermon that um, Devin preached, we haven't forgotten about your questions. We do have another recording scheduled for later this month, but Nick promised on stage that we would cover the questions from this sermon that he wasn't, we weren't able to get to. Um, and so here we are. We are covering questions from the January 9th sermon um, on Ezekiel chapter 33. Yes. Yes. So let's just, and then if we have time, we're going to go through some like clarifying and expanding on some content that Nick wanted to mention from this. Hannah, shall I give a, like a one minute on a teaser? Here's what happened in Ezekiel 33 for people who didn't see or didn't, don't remember the sermon. I mean, recapping Ezekiel can never hurt. Yeah. So anyway, chapter 33 is the end of a 33 long section chapter long section of God rebuking or telling Israel to repent and change and to follow him and believe in him, trust him or dire consequences would come, including the destruction of their land and city in the middle of Ezekiel 33, that finally happens after several years. And so this is the moment where like everything Ezekiel had predicted would happen has all happened. And so people are just really broken by it. In the first half of the chapter, um, God brings together two themes, one from chapter three, one from chapter 18. Chapter three, that Ezekiel is a watchman and he is morally responsible to warn the people. And if he doesn't, he is partly responsible for their death. Their blood will be on his hands, right? And then he says, what you need to warn them is that if you turn to me, I will, you will live. And if you turn away from me, no matter how good you've been, you will die. Like you're saved or lost by faith, not by your track record. Because God is just, but he's also merciful, and he works and weaves together mercy and justice together, right? And then um, he says that there's the people in Jerusalem who are under siege and about to die have one set of delusional problems, and the people who are already in exile have a different set. And so I went over those two different sets of problems. The ones that were in ex- who are in Jerusalem who are about to lose the siege and be slaughtered Their issue was they were in despair. They didn't think anything good could happen. They were ready to give up rather than repent. Or they were spiteful towards God. They were kind of like, I bet you love to see us this way. After all these predictions, after all this stuff, now we're finally going to die. You win. Isn't that fantastic? So it's spite instead of repentance. And then the people in in, in Babylon, 700 miles away, they're like, wait, if God could, because Ezekiel said, if these people repent in Jerusalem, God will save them right now. And they were like, how is that just? That's not okay. And they felt they're like, God's not just when Hmm. they weren't just. God was perfectly just, right? And then lastly, God says, the second delusion is the people in exile pretended like they were religious and they were faithful and they believed God, but they didn't really. They listened to him like he was some kind of love song singer because they liked to listen to prophetic words and they liked they liked the entertainment value or like how it made them feel to act like they were religiously interested, but they weren't actually interested. And you can tell in both cases, you can tell by what the people do. In, in Jerusalem, you can tell that the people don't really repent because the few that survive immediately say, oh, God, this all this land is ours. And they go right back to their wickedness. And the people in Babylon, God says the way you can tell by what they do is they don't do anything the prophet says. He tells them what to do. They listen like they care. And then they don't actually do anything with it. And he said, in both cases, you can tell that there's no honesty. There's mm-hmm. no real taking of responsibility. There's no actual repentance and faith. And that has to happen. And that's what Ezekiel is calling for because that's what God is calling for. So that's the theme, the thematic nature of 
chapter 33. So if you're sitting there listening and thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot, um, then you would understand why Nick said he could preach five sermons on this chapter, which led to someone asking, do you have a plan to do that? Is there a mini series coming? Yeah. No, there isn't. Um, <laughs> you know, part of exposition of anything is how deep do you go? And then also broadly, how much do you relate it to other things? Mm-hmm. So what's called canonical preaching, which is, which is like relating everything throughout the whole canon of scripture together and like showing how God is the same yesterday and today, forever, how his plan has been outworking. And so you can preach one passage with another passage, with another passage, with another passage. That's called canonical preaching or preaching synchronically through the, the broadness of scripture. And then you can also go deeper. You can take something and go as deep as that goes. And both of those can slow you down. Mm-hmm. So somebody emailed me about this and they said, why don't you do more sermons? I said, listen, Haddon Robinson preached a year out of Philemon, <laughs> which is one page. Yeah. And I said, there's some, at some point you just got to keep moving. And the thing to comfort ourselves with is maybe I didn't spend as much time as maybe I could have, or even should have in Ezekiel 33, but I'm going to preach about something next week and it will be in the scriptures and it will be the word of God written and I will preach Christ from it. So in that sense, we're not going to lose. Mm-hmm. We're just going to be somewhere else. So that's kind of my stick on that. Yeah. And you're not going to like run out. Like if you move too quickly through it, yeah. you're not going to run out of material. So yeah. Yeah. I think in theory at the pace I've been preaching through books, if I had like a 50 year ministry, I would run out of books. There's only 66 books. So it is possible I could get to where I would preach something again, but we'll have see. you, have you not re-preached anything so far? You know, that's there, you know, there throughout the history of America, at least, and in, in a lot of places, there, there are pastors that move on like every five years and they just preach what they preached. And yeah. I have, I, I can't even preach the same sermon twice. I mean, I guess I don't mean the same sermon, but I mean the same passage, like different sermons out of the same passage. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Cause like sometimes people ask me to preach on a topic somewhere. Sure. And it will be a passage I've preached expositionally. But like if I'm preaching on sexual ethics, I might preach out of 1 Corinthians 6. Mm-hmm. And I did that when I preached through 1 Corinthians. Right. But generally speaking, I far part of it's just to keep my life interesting for <laughs> me to work on passages. And and also like I have so much more energy when I'm fresh, when I'm when I've like I've just drank from the thing itself. Um it's kind of like the difference. This is a really gross metaphor. You ready for this? I'm so it's kind excited. of like the difference if you're like a little bird in the nest eating from what the mother bird brings back and throws up into your mouth versus trying to eat your mommy's feces to be nourished. You know what I mean? You don't want it too digested. You want them to have just tasted of it themselves and then to give it back to you while there's still passion in it. So now that I've grossed everybody else out. um, What a (laughs) vivid analogy that is. Thank you so much. With almost no proper relationship to the truth I was trying to share, but I thought it would be funny. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know how to segue from that, but I guess thank you for only semi-digesting what you give to us yeah john owen said it this way he said as a preacher you have to eat the food you're preparing for others otherwise you don't know if it's poison you don't know if it tastes good you don't you don't know anything about it but if you taste it then you'll be ready to preach it because it will have affected your soul not just have you written something that you think people will like because if you don't taste it and if it doesn't wreck you and you don't have to repent and believe yourself then the likelihood you're going to preach something that hurts other people in a good way is low, it's much more likely you're going to preach to please them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the kind of the sweet spot I'm trying to hit with preparation. That's um, a much more savory metaphor to <laughs> work with. 
moving on. So the next question that we have, the person says, can you emphasize or explain how wickedness can disguise itself in the minds of us who aren't openly wicked in the eyes of society? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the short answer to this is that every era of every culture has emphases that generally speaking are good. And what will happen in terms of how worldliness works is we'll utilize those good emphases to A, de-emphasize or eliminate our attention on other bad things and let those run rampant. And then B, ultimately the good things we're focused on, we will twist and make them not that good. So let me give you a couple examples, right? So in our present culture, our the current culture that decides what's good or bad doesn't want to talk about, for example, um, abortion, which is a form of child murder. They don't want to talk about that. That's just not part of the agenda. One of the things that is part of the agenda is, for example, like improving racial equity. But what, what's ha- what I think is happening is that is getting twisted, even though it's a good emphasis, in like there are forms of the pursuit of racial, racial equity that I think are profoundly unjust and misguided. But because it's the proper emphasis, we go, oh, that's good. Rather than saying, yeah, but is this particular action prudently good? Is this the right way to do it? Mm-hmm. And the answer is often, I don't want to think carefully enough to find out or look at the fruit carefully enough. For example, there's there's not a lot of good evidence that we have helped the poor very much in the last 50 years in America and how we help the poor. We've spent a lot of money on the poor. We've done a lot, quote, for them. That is, we've transferred funds into their pockets. But the state of their living, mm-hmm. it's hard to argue that it's improved other than the fact that just technology has improved and so their lives can't help but be better. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean our proper, our, it's not that our poverty programs help them, our just our growth, economic and technological growth helped them, right? So like, and all of those are moral in nature. All those things are moral in nature, right? And, and sometimes we also just, we create cultural euphemisms. So for example, the euphemism sex positive refers to like not being sexually repressive and realizing that sexuality is a good thing and we should be able to express it. The problem is it's not anything close to within biblical it's not a biblical sex positivity. There's a biblical sex positivity that's called Song of Songs. Like it's very sex positive, mm-hmm. but in uh, within the constraints and and like in relationship within like conjugal, covenantal, comprehensive marriage, right? That's not what the culture means by sex positive. What this culture means is a very lewd and licentious, morally disgusting, biblically speaking, view of sexuality that allows everything to be okay and things that the scriptures say are like very debauched, very broken and extremely harmful. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it's increased the amount of, for example, not just sexual immorality, but sexual violence, abuse and rape, sexual assault, I think has increased dramatically um, by trying to be, quote, sex positive in a way that isn't really positive towards sex in a, mm-hmm. in a way about relative to human nature, what teleologically that is based on how we're designed. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think when you when you go to the scriptures, one of the things that most people will find, especially if they're new to the scriptures, is some scriptures you'll read to be like, "Oh yeah, I agree with that," and then you'll read other ones you're like, oh, "I don't think I agree with that." And it's partly because you are a product of your culture, and so the things you don't agree with are the things you need to pay a heck of a lot more attention to. Mm-hmm. And then the things that you do agree with, you need to make sure you agree in the same way God does, mm-hmm. or the scriptures do, because sometimes you kind of agree, but like the scriptures agree a different way because of because of the way the emphases of cultures get twisted and the non-emphases of culture get ignored. An enormous amount of horrific wickedness, according to scripture, according to God, can just hide in plain sight. Hmm. Right? 
um, and people become increasingly sophisticated relative to sin, the further you can make the consequence of sin be from the act of sin, mm-hmm. the more hidden it tends to be to people because people generally only repent when they have to. Because mm-hmm. skin for skin, everybody's just interested in themselves, as Satan says in Job 2. So like if I can if I can make if I can act in a sexually licentious way, but because of birth control and abortion and lots of other things, I can actually make the cost of my misuse of my fertility come 30 years down the road instead of nine months down the road or a month down the road. Then the more I can I can like not connect the two in my mind. And also if I can make it more complicated, if I can say, if I can like say, well, this result, what happened is very, very complicated. It's not simply that I did X and Y happened. It's that, you know, all kinds of other things happened. And so by those means, we tend to jettison responsibility. And because human beings are experts, as I said on Sunday, at evading responsibility, wherever we can, in any reasonable sense, evade responsibility, like we can make an argument for evading it, we tend to. Mm-hmm. And the way mob psychology works, you know, we all want to affirm each other in our sins because we want to be affirmed in ours. So there's this codependent sinful relationship that happens in cultures where I'll tell you your sin is okay and you tell me my sin is okay. So we can be, keep sinning and doing what we want. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's another really key way humans keep sin like the, the society wouldn't condemn flourishing. Is, yeah, flourishing is that they 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 implicitly agree to affirm each other in their mm-hmm. sins. And the Bible calls that worthless friendship or worthless counsel. Yeah. So So the dynamic here is that like we – get the approval of society. We're doing things in a way that the society doesn't categorize as um, openly wicked. But the right. reason for that is because they've euphemized all of these different wicked behaviors um, and right. kind of distanced the action from the moral gravity. And we end up buying into certain behaviors or viewpoints yeah. that we are blind to the fact that they're wicked as well. Or we're turning a blind eye to it. Yeah. I mean, scripture says that part of worldliness is you learn to call evil good. Mm-hmm. And you persuade yourself that's the case. And so there are, there are really terrible evils that operate in our society really simply and easily and everywhere that people are just completely blind to. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've like watched a show on like Netflix and been about two thirds of the way through it or a quarter way through it. And it's just like filled with sin. And it's just completely normal in this show. And I just kind of, there's something inside me that goes... I kind of feel like a traitor watching this, mm-hmm. you know, like this is just like, but the thing is, it's so, I mean, I mean, it seems like a cliche to say it's normalized, but that, that is a social and human process. In fact, we do it with abuse. There's no reason I think we wouldn't do it with sin. Right. You know, and it's, and it varies generationally. Right. So mm-hmm. yes, those- it will, it keeps, it tends to change by generation. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and sexuality is a really good example of this. Lewis used to talk about this, even with like attraction. Like if you think about like what woman is attractive in each culture, right? Um, it'll change like every 25 years or so, partly because mm-hmm. of fashion and clothing sales, partly because of just like just changing things up. And so like brunettes are in one year and then like somebody who's more curvy the next year and like skinny girls were in in 1995 and like thicker girls are in now, right? And, and Lewis would say, none of that is biological. Like there is a wholeness to a the female form that is biologically naturally attractive. It's highly variant. Like there's lots of different female forms that are perfectly whole and female. But then there's an exaggeration that each generation picks as its identitarian 
idea of female beauty and it changes. Mm-hmm. And there's and why does it change? It's just fashion. But yet it does. And the thing is, we do that morally too. Right. We we and, and generally speaking, we and what Lewis said, and I think that this was brilliant. He talks about this in the screw tape letters, that the way we console ourselves in our sin is we see ourselves as solving the sin of the previous generation. Hmm. So for example, right now in America, throughout most of my adult life, we have been unbelievably licentious sexually as a culture. I mean, just beyond imagining for a lot of human history. Now, you got to be careful because in the ancient world, there was a lot of this too. But because people imagine the 1920s, say through the 1950s, as being very sexually prudish, um, apparently they've never seen any of the advertising to men in those decades, (laughs) which is like very sexualized. Right. Um, but let, let's pretend we don't know that, right? They go, oh, you know, people were very sex negative from like 1880 to 1960. And so we're just like, we're just correcting that. Right. Okay. Well, if you were, you've long overshot. I mean, it's it's um, Kierkegaard's seven league boots, right? Like he, the man put on his seven league boots, took one step and was far beyond his goal, right? <laughs> if, you, if you put on magic boots where if you take one step, you step seven miles, but the thing you're trying to get to is two miles away. Mm-hmm. Then if you put on your boots and take one step, you've overshot your goal. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's of course what we did with sexual morality, right? People were like, oh, we need to fix these repressions. And like, we put on our seven league boots because sexuality is so explosive. Like you just, you take the reins off the thing and it, it just blows up in one generation. And so they're like, well, we don't want, you know, like women beholden to a sexual ethic that like hurts them, be like be restrained. Well, yeah, we'll wake up and smell the bananas for like how, what women are going through at universities right now, mm-hmm. you know? Except now they have to pretend they like it mm-hmm. instead of being able to complain about it in the 50s and 60s. Anyway, so the point is, the, the point is, as Lewis says, like you, people, one of the ways sin hides in plain sight is people keep, they, they point back to something that's already gone and say, that was so bad. And therefore we can do the thing we're doing now. And it's fine because that other thing is bad. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of like now, if you come up with a racist policy to create equity, you can say it's okay by pointing back to the racism of the 60s and mm-hmm. and, 50, and 70s and 80s. And you're like, well, so I can be racist now in a new way because I'm still reacting to that racism rather than prudentially living in the present and saying, okay, we want to be sexually godly and sexually positive in the ways that God is. So we want to fulfill First Thessalonians 4. We need to learn to control ourselves. And Song of Songs, we need to express ourselves with our wives and husbands in the sheer love that he offers us. And we can do both of those at the same time. We don't have to be all in 1920s or 1990s, right? Same thing with racism. We want to be tr- give every person their due, no matter what their ethnicity, and make sure that things are distributed according to the, the ordered nature of rights and merit, right? Instead of being a new kind of racist. And so like all of these issues are part of our avoidance. And we just have to remember that human beings are incredibly good at self-delusion and incredibly good at avoidance. We use our intelligence for the opposite of what it was intended. That's why That's why Luther said reason was a whore. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because reason couldn't be virtuous. It's because it doesn't want to be. Good. Thank you. Uh, next question. It says, near the beginning of your sermon, you said that salvation was in the ever present for Christians. Do you think that someone can be truly saved and then lose their salvation or just lose their way and take their focus off of God in periods of their life? 
Yeah. So, okay. This goes back to my mantra. The Bible is a psychological book more than a philosophical one in ways we don't always pay attention to. Okay. So sometimes what the Bible is talking about isn't the thing that pops into our heads. So if in your systematic theology, you've spent a lot of time thinking about, um, can you, can you lose your salvation or can't you, if you're saved, are you permanently saved? Or if psychologically speaking, assurance has been incredibly important to you emotionally in your faith, knowing that you belong to God and how that helps you, then every time I say something like this, you'll be like, well, well, what about, right? And the answer is, this isn't about that, Hmm. right? Um, It is true that if we look at other passages of scripture, that if we experience conversion, we are really saved. I believe that the preponderance of biblical evidence is that God keeps us to the end, that God does a keeping work, and that when that is in conjunction with a regenerate heart, that the result is perseverance, that we'll make it to the end to be saved. Mm -hmm. I do believe that. However, because I believe that, I don't stop saying the other things the Bible says. So in other places, the Bible says, if you trust in God, you will live. And if you don't trust in God, you'll die. And if you go, well, wait a second. And and it it says explicitly in Ezekiel 33, if you have been righteous, God will wipe that away Mm -hmm. and not remember on your behalf. But if you've also been wicked, he'll wipe that away. Right? So in that sense, what he's saying is faith, right? Your choice today to choose who you are right now and who you're going to be admitting that you were wrong in the past and choosing a path into the future. Salvation exists in the present. Today is the day of salvation, right? And so either you can confirm your conversion today, or you can reject it. If you are, if you said you were a Christian in the past, or if you had rejected Jesus, you could believe in him today. Like what, what God is saying is as long as you're alive, you can turn around. And God says it explicitly in Ezekiel 33. And I know that this is chilling, this is true for everyone, hmm. not just the wicked. It's also true for the righteous. Mm-hmm. You can turn around. Even at the very end of your life, you can turn around. And if you're among the righteous and you believe and you're trusting God and living in the way of faith, don't turn around. Persevere. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you are among the wicked, for God's sakes, turn around and stop persevering in your wickedness and by faith turn to the way of life. Why will you die, O Israel? Mm-hmm. Right? Or 2021 Madisonian person or listener, right? So that that is always God's eternally present offer. Mm-hmm. Now, it, can that simultaneously be true with the fact that if you've been saved truly and experienced regeneration, God will keep you to the end? Yeah, I think so. I think he can, yeah. Because if you are saved and truly regenerate, you, are, you will have stepped in among the righteous and in the way of life, and you won't turn back. Because God's work of keeping you will help you persevere, and you will persevere. And so you won't turn back and have your righteousness wiped out that that you have done in obedience, and God will then keep you to the end and you'll be saved, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't think there's anything incompatible, but it's just, it's the perspective that God is offering here. Mm -hmm. Like, because if you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm saved, I'll always be saved. And the question is, well, okay, but, but the Bible also says that you can be deluded about you being saved. Mm Mm-hmm. So Charles Spurgeon, who was a very committed Calvinist who believed in the perseverance of the saints, if you were a Christian, you were going to make it to the end. People would ask him these questions and he'd say, just stop, just be saved, which hmm. is the same thing I said in the eternal present, right? Like the, the, the greatest assurance the Bible offers you is not, did you accept Jesus in the past at some event, mm-hmm. right? If, if you don't think I'm telling the truth here, read the book of first John in the Bible. When John, John writes the whole the whole book's about assurance, just if you read it as a whole, what you'll see is 
The book is about assurance. He wants you to know whether or not you're saved. And he wants you to be comforted by the fact that you are in God's love. And so he says, okay, how do you know this? Even if your own heart and soul are telling you you're not really saved, can you know? And the answer is yes, you can know. And he, and he gives three major criteria. A, do you love Jesus? Are you willing to confess right now you believe in Jesus? He is the son of God and you belong to him. Two, do you love the brethren? That is the brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people who belong to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus and you love Jesus, you will love them, right? John 21, right? Jesus says to, to Peter, do you love me? And he and Peter says, I love you. And he says, okay, well then love my sheep. The two are inextricably connected. And if you believe you love Jesus, but you don't love people who belong to Jesus, you're a liar. You don't believe in Jesus. So do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Okay, how do we know if you really do? Well, there are people who belong to him. Do you love them? Mm-hmm. Right? And then the third is, are you falling out of love with the world? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And if those are true, then you are saved in the present and can feel assurance. And they say, well, then does that mean I was saved in the past when I accepted Jesus? And the answer is probably. Yeah. I mean, that, that but the evidence you see is in the present. Right. Right. I think this Even is though a- God's promise goes along mm-hmm. with your faith. So his promise that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. That happens at any moment of confession. So if you did that 12 years ago, is it likely that's when you were saved? Absolutely. But what's the evidence today that salvation has happened in you? And the answer mm-hmm. is the criteria of 1 John, which is, do you love Jesus? Will you confess him? Do you love his people? And are you becoming disconnected from the world? That is, are you falling out of, is your faith in mammon decreasing? And are you, um, are you letting your idolatry go mm-hmm. so that you worship the one true God, which is Christ? So I... I, I think all those things are compatible. Mm-hmm. And if we had enough time, I'd bring in Hebrews 6, which seems the most incompatible and show how all of it is compatible. <laughs> but you just have to open your mind a little bit of not contradictory truths, but different ways of talking about different phenomenon of faith, how mm-hmm. we experience, express, and abide in faith. And you mm-hmm. can talk about that from different perspectives to get at different emphases, which get at different conditions of the human heart. And the human heart is kind of complicated. And God talks at us from different directions and we have to be open to that diversity. I think this like um, way of approaching the question of like assurance of salvation relates to the next question we have, which is on Ezekiel 33, 16 says he has done what is just and right. He will surely live. So the person asks, this sounds like salvation by works, um, which sounds like a lot of some of the stuff that you are saying about um, faith in action and where are your loves oriented at this moment in time? What does your faith have to yeah. show? So how does faith play into the passage? Yeah. These two verses, that verse and the verse following create a really beautiful explanation of the dynamic of salvation, which is you are saved by faith and you're judged by works, right? Um, th- that's how the book of James and the book of Romans go together. Right, mm-hmm. like when 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 the book of James says you are saved by 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 your acts of righteousness and not by faith alone, what does that mean? Right, and what James means is the totality of your receiving of your salvation includes the evidence that triumphs in your judgment. Okay, mm-hmm. it's not metaphysical. It's not like your works don't regenerate you. Right, God regenerates you. Right, because it's kind of like this: if you say you're saved by faith, that's also false. Right, because you're you're not saved by faith. You're saved by Christ, right? the 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 way you access the salvation of Christ is through faith, mm-hmm. by means of repentance and belief, right? And then, 
you receive the transformation of the regeneration of the heart, right? God giving you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And then that produces godliness. That is, you walk in good works or in the way of Christ. Now, what that means is, is that there are some parts of this that are visible empirically. You can observe them, which means, A, you can use them to judge yourself. B, the church can use them to judge the credibility of your claim of regeneration. And three, God can use them as public evidence as to whether or not you are regenerate in your judgment. So even though you're not saved by your actions, your actions are the indisputable public and empirical proof of the mystical reality of your regeneration and salvation. Mm-hmm. So your works are that by which you're judged because you're, because you're judged by public evidence. So when God judges you publicly and like, like cosmically, he says, I say Hannah is saved. Look at these things, how she walked. Don't you see how that's indisputable evidence of my work in her life? Because I regenerated her. I filled her with my spirit. She trusted in me and believed in me and persevered to the end. Does that make sense? And so what these verses say is, and this, I think this is really interesting. So it says, um, I'm going to start in verse 14, read through 16. Again, I say, although I say to the wicked, you will surely die. Yet if he turns from his sins and does what is just and right... If the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he's taken by robbery and walks in the statutes of life, doing not doing injustice, he shall surely live and not die. And then it says this, none of the sins he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right and he will surely live. So in verse 14, when it says, if the wicked person turns, that refers to repentance and faith, right? The result of repentance and faith has to be repentance and faith. To argue that you can repent and believe without repenting and believing is kind of weird and amounts to calling God a liar. If repentance is the repudiation of the evil you have done, Mm -hmm. you have to repudiate the evil that you've done. And if faith is embracing the way of God and what he says is true, then faith has to be embracing God and believing in what he says is true. (laughs) This idea that you can like believe something without believing it and reject something without rejecting it. And that that has to be true for God to be truthful. Hmm. It's to say that God can be truthful by being a liar. I mean, it just, it doesn't make any philosophical or practical sense. Right? So what, what God is saying is if in fact you, the wicked person turns from their ways, that is they engage in repentance and faith, the result will be they will try to make up for and restore that which they have taken. They'll try to create justice where they've produced injustice because it will be produced by their repentance. They've turned. They've turned from wickedness toward life. They've repented and believed. Because they've repented and believed, they will behave like it, mm-hmm. right? And God says, if they do that, they will live. And then he says this, the way that happens is, verse 16, none of their, the sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. So God is speaking explicitly there of atonement. Right? God is going to do something with the, with the sinful debt of their sin that deserves their punishment they can do nothing about. God will not remember. That is, he will put it away. He'll atone for it. He'll cover it, is what atonement means. So that they will not be caught in the cycle of deserved punishment, which is damnation. So what God is saying is three things are going to happen. One is the person is going to experience salvation, regeneration, faith, repentance, and belief. Two, their life will change. And as their life changes, I will con- I will confirm their movement towards life and away from death by giving them life and saving them from death. And third, 
the reason that can work is because their past sin that they deserve hell for, I will not remember because I have provided a way of covering over that is atonement, which is God's work. So God does the work of atonement. God does the work of regeneration. God does the work of calling. God does the work of offering. The person does repent and believe, and then God helps them act like it. Mm-hmm. But then God judges them on the basis of them acting like it because it's evidence of everything else. Does that make sense? So that's how I would answer that. It's a little lengthy, but I hope relatively complete and mm-hmm. expositional from those verses. Yeah, I really appreciate you walking through those passages because I think if we take just verse, like the end of verse 15 um, on its own, and then yeah. we try to argue from different New Testament passages, et cetera, um, you know, we operate on the assumption on the like that scripture doesn't contradict itself. So we're always mm-hmm. looking for the full testimony of scripture and trying to harmonize those things together. But it's really helpful to look at just the full context of these verses right here and how they yeah. include that whole message. But when- and, and note how like God often provides in the very next sentence, mm-hmm. the nuancing truth so that if we pay attention when we read, we would know it wasn't a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Like God gives us a, a, a truth and then he nuances it so that we could eat, we could know it's not contradictory if we just pay attention to the next couple of lines. But but really carefully, like I don't I don't begrudge this person asking that question. Right. We've theologically trained them as the church to ask that question. And we haven't done a good job of helping them read scripture deeply. And I, that's one of the reasons why I try to preach expositionally the way I do, is try to help with that. Right. I think maybe some confusion could come in this passage if we're reading it. And like, is there room in this passage for someone to go through the actions without having a change of heart where they're like, it's specifically talking about the mm-hmm. actions of the wicked person. It doesn't specifically mention the change of heart, but we're like, it seems suggested yeah. that the reason they do that is because they have a change of heart. So is it fair yeah. for us to assume that? So it's, I feel like this is a deeper, harder question because like, for example, one of the more famous evangelicals for the last 15 years, at least has been Tim Keller mm-hmm. and Tim Keller, though he's a Presbyterian, takes a very Lutheran approach to talking about salvation, where he'll say, look, my neighbor may be a better man than me, but I am saved by the grace of God. I mean, God graciously saves me, and I, I need to offer that gracious salvation to my neighbor. He might be a better man than me, but that's really not the point. Right? God doesn't love me because I obey. I obey because God loves me. Mm-hmm. Right? This is an offer of grace, not a contest. Mm-hmm. Right? And he's totally right about that. However, one of the things, the questions that it begs is how, how does regeneration affect ethics and does the Holy Spirit make a difference? And should Christian faith, real Christian faith, produce an increased righteousness, right? Now, Lewis said, you really can't compare, though, people who say they're Christians and people who say they're not Christians because there's a lot of people who say they're Christians who aren't. But secondly, you're not comparing apples to apples because people are different. Like if you compare somebody who is a Christian but who has a, a terribly difficult temperament, like they were born bipolar, mm-hmm. and but Jesus is doing a work in them. But it's man, it's hard. Um, and then you got another person who has a perfectly placid temperament who's naturally just nice, but like isn't doesn't belong to Jesus. Um, he's like if you try to compare what you observe in those two people of who's more righteous, you might come to some very strange conclusions from God's perspective, mm-hmm. right? What we have to ask the question is if you take Jim, the guy who has the nice temperament who's not a Christian, what would Jim be like with Jesus? Hmm. regenerate filled with the spirit what would he look like what would it what would his his life look like what would his righteousness look like and, and until you know that you don't know which of course you can't know right the only time you can know it is if somebody um 
isn't a believer and becomes one. Right. In theory, you can't go the other way. If God causes the the regenerate to persevere, in theory, you couldn't go the other way. Right. And so um, I think it's important to recognize that like in the Bible, faith produces real righteousness, not just imputed righteousness. So imputation, for those who don't know, is the crediting of righteousness. So it's kind of like if you're in, in court and you would be found guilty and by some means you are you are judged to be innocent in reference to the law and so set free. That's an imputed righteousness. You're counted innocent, even though you may have committed a crime, right? The Bible says that when Jesus dies for our sins and we accept him as our savior, right? And he comes and changes us, right? One of the things that happens is justification. God counts you innocent. Righteousness is imputed or given as a gift to you. But the but the Bible, Old and New Testaments, everywhere presumes that wherever there is faith, there is the, what's called the way of life or righteousness. That is, people behave or act to please God in his will, recognizing that God is moral in his nature and loves what is good. And so therefore, anybody who follows that God in his will is going to become more just, more right, more wise, and behave in a way that's more beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so I think that any theology that doesn't have a practical demand in it, that we would actually become righteous. Not perfect, but like, People would look to us and say, my life is better because that person knows Jesus. Like, even if I don't believe in Jesus, like, people would recognize that we are. Now, that's not always going to be true because if you go back to question number two, obviously that all complicates it. Mm -hmm. But I think that, I I think that any Christian for for whom there is no effect needs to work through the assurances of 1 John a little better. Mm -hmm. And that, so so obviously I want to nuance this because I think human infirmity and human trauma and a few other things can inhibit people's strength of capacity to become strong enough for righteousness. And so whenever a person is traumatized, whenever a person has an infirmity that we don't understand, it's a weakening uh, effect on them as a person, or if they haven't been developed in human virtue, all of those are profoundly weakening effects on the human soul and can inhibit people having the strength to actually act in a righteous way. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's why the church can't just say, be better. That's why the church has to have a gracious ministry, because I need to look at where people really are and help them believe the truth, but also become strengthened in the spirit, in, in, in their spiritual power so that they can exert righteousness. And I think sometimes our preaching has been so focused on truth, it hasn't been focused on the development of the human soul and the strengths of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I think the world waits in ways that maybe they didn't have to, to see more practical righteousness in the life of the Christians around them. I think that's a, I mean, that's primarily addressing the reality that you don't have, you can't have faith without works. But in this passage, is it possible that this wicked person has works without faith? I think, I think you can. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, um, has this whole section, one of a couple of his writings about the difference between common virtue and true virtue. That there are reasons why people do, quote, good things that are not rooted in the glorification of God mm-hmm. in reference to their identity as an image bearer of God and doing things for God's glory, right? Um, there are all kinds of reasons to do good things. And I also think that like even people who don't believe in God still bear the image of God and have innate structures that lead them to godliness, at least in a form, even in the midst of ungodliness. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, human beings are God's small G in the world because they bear God's image no matter what. That's why we can be so awful too, 
right? There's nothing so evil as a human being. Right. So in that sense, like, I do think that people can do an enormous amount of good, even though they're not Christians, because they still have consciences that work some, right? They still have um, passion for each other. They still have the capacity to have um, all kinds of different affections, even if not full sacrificial caritas love, they still have all kinds of versions of affection and senses of moral obligation to each other that can still exist within within sin. Mm-hmm. And um, they can operate even without the power of the spirit because the human being is so powerful in and of itself, mm-hmm. even broken and cursed and fallen. And so, yeah, I think people can do good, but like good is relative. Right. Right. I mean, criminals do good all the time. I mean, how many times have you seen some gangbanger get killed and his mom, his mom is like on TV saying he was such a good boy. Right. I have no doubt he was such a good boy. He probably loved his little sister so much and picked her up from school and took her to the park and like provided for his mom. And, but he, he was selling drugs and killing people on the side. Right. So was he a good man? No, he was a wicked man who did some good. So then in this passage, how do we know from this passage that this wicked man is being saved for his faith? By faith, not by doing yeah. good things. I think one of the markers is because it, it's, it talks about his turning, mm-hmm. right? Again, though I say to the wicked man, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, mm-hmm. right? That's why it says, I think it's, is it, is it Hosea or Habakkuk? Where the New Testament authors like to quote, the righteous will live by faith. Mm-hmm. And then Paul uses that to express justification by faith to us. But the dynamic is those who are just, that is, they do righteousness, mm-hmm. they live in that way by faith. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Um, we should move on. Next question is, what do you do when real responsibility and repentance bring despair, even after virtuous exertion? So I, I, let me give you the scripture references and I'll answer that. So Habakkuk 2.4 is where that is from. Okay. And the Apostle Paul quotes, the just will live by faith in Romans one seventeen. And Romans one seventeen is literally his thesis statement for the entire book of Romans, which explains all of our salvation. Great. So we could do a lot on that. Okay. All right. What do you do when real responsibility and repentance brings to spirit even after virtuous exertion? Okay. So I got a similar question after my sermon in person, which mm-hmm. is, what if I believe what you say, and I really believe I've repented, but I still keep falling into certain sins? Mm. Now, it's a different it's a different question, but it's it gets a similar human phenomenon, mm-hmm. which I've already alluded to earlier in the podcast, which is this: what a human person believes, they can't they don't know how to be more sincere in a belief, right? So they believe in Jesus, they believe he's beautiful, they believe he's right, they believe they've repented of sins, they've turned to him, right? And yet, they can't seem to act like it. Mm. And then, and then you go, okay, well, are you sincere? And they're like, look, I don't, I mean, I understand, I understand that I have motivations I don't understand, but as everything I know about myself, I say, I believe this. Right. Right. When somebody says that I first try to assess whether or not I think they're lying, if they're the sort of person who tells the truth. Right. But if I think that they're trying to be truthful, then I would say, okay, then I would look at some other things to see what's holding you up. So um, Lyman Beecher, who was a preacher in the 1800s said about some, he said, he said he was preaching one day and he was looking at like Mr. Smith. And he said, I saw Mr. Smith and that something was, as I was like discoursing on the Lord's prayer or something, I saw something was stopping up his wheels. 
Meaning like if you imagine pushing a wheelbarrow and there's like a stick and the, 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 the tire hits the stick and like, it just stops the wheelbarrow. Everything falls out of it. Like it just, that wheel just won't go over that. Mm-hmm. And there's actually nothing wrong with the wheelbarrow. There's just something stopping up the wheel. Right. right? I think we've and covered so, some of this content and discussing substance even recently also about yeah. like just getting stuck. Right. Right. I mean, that's the whole, that is literally the whole premise of substance. Right. That like you're, it's not your faith in Jesus. It's the problem. It's that you have faith in another God, which is mammon that is choking your faith in Jesus to death. Mm-hmm. Similarly, there are other things that can choke your ability to trust in Jesus and follow him to death besides worldliness. Worldliness is the main culprit. Mm-hmm. I covered that on Christmas Eve and in almost every sermon. But there are also other ones like wounds and hurts mm-hmm. and the sorts of things. Like if you have behave, if you're engaging in behaviors that you don't understand where they're coming from, mm-hmm. usually that's like a psychological thing. Mm-hmm. It's often connected to how you brought up some like baseline beliefs about yourself you don't understand. Um, people sometimes people don't understand that by by the age of about eight, most of how we operate in the world is running on mental programs that are already established and they just keep running, and the, and without it's and it's an incredibly good engineering design by God. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that if all those programs are bad, it's hard to change them. Right. And so, a lot of the times when people, um, either try to like make their lives go in the right direction, or stop doing things that are wrong, or just try to feel better, a lot of times that is rooted in like wounds and hurts and places where they don't need. They don't need to believe harder. They need to be able to receive a kind of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, sometimes what you need is a spiritual guide mm-hmm. to guide you through the path out. Yeah. It sounds like for the person asking this question, um, their struggle isn't so much that like I keep not making progress, but that I'm so in despair that I can't make progress that nothing is going to change or that I can never mm-hmm. um, be what I'm supposed to be in Christ. So what do you do yeah. with that specific sort of depression, despair that comes out of sort of looking at what you're supposed to be in scripture? Yeah. So um, generally speaking, the way I would work through this as uh, as a pastor in terms of spiritual guidance is I would, I would walk through page 75 in Loveless's Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Step one, does this person understand justification or do Mm -hmm. they have it confused with something else? Do they believe that in the work of Christ, they are, um, every, that they are justified. That is, they are accepted Mm -hmm. in Christ and as they are entirely, right? If that's the case, then I move to sanctification, which is the idea that we can change and we are free in Christ, Mm -hmm. right? You're no longer trapped. So does your despair come from that you feel like you're trapped? So first in justification, does your despair come from the belief that you really aren't good enough? Mm-hmm. You really aren't worthwhile. Second is, does it come from the fact that you feel like you really are trapped? Third is the presence of Christ or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that God is with us. Jesus said, I'll be with you to the very end of the age, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in us so deeply, it says in Romans 8, that when we groan, he groans with us, right? Even deeper below our conscious thoughts, he can be with us. So the third I would say is, do you really think that you're alone in all Mm. this, right? And then the last is spiritual authority, right? God has given you the right to exist and to do what he has called you to do. Do you believe in, do you believe that you, you don't have the right to do anything? You Mm. don't have the right to say, this is who I am. This is what I'm called to do. This is who I'm called to be, right? I would, I'd probably walk through those four things first, both spiritually and psychologically Mm. is what I would try to do. Yeah, that sounds good. And then I would start to work on some peripheral stuff like 
are what's your view of the good life? Mm-hmm. Are you able to embrace responsibility as what your life means? Or do you have a strange meaning of human meaning? I would look at things like community. Do you have close friends? Do you feel like you're, you know, I would look at some of these spiritual markers of happiness. Like, is is there a group to which you feel like you belong? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like this, what you do matters to other people? Do you have a view of life that, that br- takes in suffering that tells you what life means? Mm-hmm. And I walk through some of those things to see how they, how they conceptualize life. Cause sometimes there could be a, like a conceptual black hole that no matter what you do, you can never be happy, hmm. you know? So, and, and that's why I say people in this position, oftentimes what they need is a spiritual guide because they've tried to think their way out of it. They've tried to get out of it. They've exerted themselves as much as they can. They just don't know the way out. And oftentimes what you need at that point is a guide. So for those listening at High Point, what would that look like for people here at High Point to seek out a guide? Yeah, normally what I would do is I'd encourage them to talk to a pastor to triage them, to just kind of figure out where they're at and then for them to connect them with somebody that can help them. For women, because our women's mentoring program is better organized than some of our other ministries and because we have somebody who does the triage into that, Alexi Gibson, you can go directly towards the mentoring program and then try to get paired with a mentor. And oftentimes that can be a good, a good helpful guide. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes your mentor won't be your technical guide They'll just be your journey guy. They're right. like they'll be they'll journey with you as a friend and somebody who cares about you and who you can talk to. But oftentimes you'll need a pastor or a counselor or somebody with very specific kinds of spiritual wisdom to help you figure out what the next step in your journey is. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. Sometimes uh, we call that you you know this, term, but sometimes we call that spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, next question. How does one truly know the fear of the Lord? We don't see miracles or instant deaths, God smiting people like we do in the Old Testament as much today. Um, where does modern day Christian learn to fear the Lord? Um, in some ways, a lot of these dynamics do operate today. Um, there are prophets who have said things that were going to happen. And then there are prophets who said other things that didn't happen. So we've got prophets and false prophets today. The problem is we just don't pay any attention to them, you know? Um, and it's hard to figure out who to pay attention to. And, and like sometimes because we have the Bible, we know who to pay attention to in retrospect. We think that it was obvious for the people in that day. But in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, for example, it's very clear. God says explicitly, there's so many false prophets. My people don't listen to my prophets. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know that God would say anything different about America. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of people trying to talk for God and to try to talk for reality and rejecting God. And then we have some people trying to talk for God and people tend to listen to the former group rather than the latter. I mean, that sounds like just like the Old Testament to me. Um, also, in the last, say, three or four weeks, we've had at least three people report being miraculously healed. Mm-hmm. So um, we had Evan Degler who went in because he had a tumor in his neck that doctors said that he could die in the removal of. And that it was very dangerous surgery and he'd have to have multiple C-spine pieces were um, fused to us praying for him on a Sunday morning where everybody could see. He goes to the surgery. They find a ball of um, like a bald group of blood vessels instead of a tumor. It's easily removed. He goes home early. No C-spines fused. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding about imaging is that the imaging of a tumor does not look like a ball of a ball of um, blood vessels, but I don't. But I don't think this was doctor, doctoral incompetence. Right. I think God 
touched him. Um, secondly, there was a guy who called the church after he heard about Evan being healed. Mm-hmm. And he said, I got numbers for my doctor. They're, my liver number, I can't remember which number it is, was 100 more than it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. which indicates like very profound sickness that my life is in danger. I could die. Mm-hmm. I have to go back for tests in a couple of days. Would you please pray for me? I prayed for him over the phone. Mm-hmm. I just said, God, please help this guy. Mm-hmm. And he went back to his doctor and he said, my tests were 100% normal. Awesome. And the doctor said, this is unheard. I've never seen this before. (laughs) Right. And I mean, doctors, I mean, sometimes people pick on doctors for like not saying it's a miracle. It's not their job to say it's a miracle. It's their job to report the empirical nature of the medical science, right? The guy had a terrible number and now he has a good one. (laughs) It's not the doctor's job to tell us it's a miracle. It's our job to decide if we have faith for that. Right. And then thirdly, um, just last Sunday, like literally when I preached a sermon, um, a lady who had had very painful spasmatic, like back spasms, um, she came up for prayer. I don't think she expected much. <laughs> they prayed for her. And then like an hour and a half later, she was like, wait a second. I don't have any back pain at mm-hmm. all. And I haven't since they said, well, since they prayed for me. And then she, so she called the church. It was like, you guys, like, I think I was healed. Mm-hmm. So this isn't like, I mean, some charismatic churches that are really, really focused on healing as the main need. They'll, they'll like pray for people. They'll say, raise your hand if you feel like you might be better. And it, sometimes people can feel like that's real su- like suggestive. But I mean, this is like x-rays and like medical measurements for the first two. And then this lady, like we didn't ask her if she was healed. She called us because <laughs> she was like, you guys, I was healed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so secondly, I mean, it's that verse in James that always haunts me like, um, you don't have because you don't ask God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying, listen, when I die and go and ascend into heaven, you're going to do greater things than I did. So I, sometimes I think that the, the miracles thing is just we don't pay attention or we just don't know what's happening or we just don't see it or whatever. Right. How, however, like I can't tell you the last time somebody who was literally in a wheelchair got up and walked out of the church. Sure. Right. And I, I, I accept that there's a certain kind of level of miraculous incredibleness that is extremely uncommon. Right. In our so, society. Yes. Yes. In our society. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had a, I had a seminary friend, Fainun Sofo from Nigeria, who, um, who's, who said, I asked him one time, I, cause he said there were a lot of miracles in the ministry he was associated with in Nigeria. And I said, have you, did you ever see someone raised from the dead? And he said, only a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them, he had prayed for the guy. Right. You know, and it's kind of like, oh, these primitive people, they don't know. I, when I was in college, there was a guy, Mark, I can't remember his last name, but like this guy was a Presbyterian and a cessationist. So he didn't believe that God did the miraculous <laughs> gifts of the spirit anymore, including healing for the most part. I mean, it was possible, whatever. But he went to this Muslim village because the Christian missionary who'd gone to that village from this um, Ugandan ministry, um, their son had died. And the imam in that, in that village had brought out a loudspeaker to preach in front of his house. Hmm. about the authority of Allah because the Christian God couldn't even keep this, this kid alive. Mm-hmm. And like the, U- the Uganda missionary, like this is how Marx tells it. He goes, he goes, yeah. So this missionary, like I go into the house to comfort the family. Cause this is humiliating and a personal attack. And like, this is what you do. And the Uganda missionary wrestles the microphone out of the imam's hand, prays for the kid, raises him from the dead and then preaches and leads the whole village to Jesus. And then this is the, this is the part about the way he told the story that just like, like really affected me. He just had, he got this befuddled look on his face. And he's like, you know, 45 minutes later, I was playing Frisbee with the kid. (laughs) 
And he said he, the kid had been dead four days. Like they walked in the house and they could smell it. Wow. Decomposing. So like, man, I think a lot of what doesn't, I mean, Jesus says in Luke, when the son of man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Hmm. Right. And he was talking to his religious people when he said that. So I think sometimes we just don't realize how little faith we have. It's unbelievably little. Anyway, okay. So all that stipulated, <laughs> right? Where do we find the fear of the Lord? I, st- I think you still can find the fear of the Lord in things like seeing his grandeur in creation. There are being exists that created all this. Like if you, if you track the science back to the big bang, and you look for an explanation of the cosmology that exists and the teleology, the design of everything that exists, it indicates a personal, enormously powerful, incredibly wise, profoundly intelligent being. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, I can't go through the, all the arguments of why you could prove all that from it, but I think you can. And that would cause you to be like, oh my gosh, something very, very big exists mm-hmm. that is God. Right? I think also from wisdom, I think if you look at scripture and you look at life, the, because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you if you start to believe in God and have fear of the Lord, and then you start to go into wisdom, you start to look at how life is, you start to look at God's ways, and you look at how life is, and you look at God's ways, what you see is over and over and over again, God turns out to be right. I mean, one of the one of the most fascinating parts of my life has been to study the scriptures and preach stuff I didn't know if it was right. <laughs> I just be like, like, I don't, I mean, this isn't how I would do it if I was managing my life. But there must be some deeper principle here. And it just turns out there always is. Like mm-hmm. God understands reality better than me. And I just don't think that would be the case. If the Bible was nothing but an ancient book written by primitive people, I just don't think my life would have worked out that way. Right. And it causes me to go, oh my gosh, this God is wise. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And not just wise in terms of like knowing stuff, but like good wise, like just wise. Mm-hmm. And that makes me concerned because the fear of the Lord enters me because I'm not a good man. Right. Not relative to the wise God of scripture. I also think that there's a number of things related to beauty. If you build a spiritual aesthetic sense and you begin to see the beauty that is in the world, even in the midst of the curse, hmm. it can become overwhelming. Right. And you can experience the sense of the fear of the Lord. Um, and sometimes I think the Holy Spirit will give it to you. Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that, but remember the fear of the Lord in the Bible is something that nobody has. Virtually nobody has. Right. Right. There's this place in Nehemiah where Nehemiah has to leave and he's like turning, he's turning all the work he did over to a couple of guys to administrate it. And he's like, I picked this guy because he fears God more than most people. (laughs) So it's not like with all the miracles and um, demonstrations of divine power, it's not like they had that much of an advantage over us (laughs) in terms of No, I mean, you read the Bible and the fear of God is nowhere. I mean, people who really fear the Lord are in an enormous minority. Because, I mean, if you think about it this way, you, we, when we read the Bible, what we have is a completely unnatural con, like, um, condensation of miracles, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is like a large landmass with thousands of people living in it, apparently a couple of a million within the wider geographical range, right? And we're reading about these, these miracles. Now, if you went through the whole Bible, you took out all the miracles in the Old Testament, and you did the math of how many human beings are there, and like, you worked it out. You, what you would not find is a miracle-rich environment, hmm. right? We just have been told about a lot of them. And similarly, I, I think that there's just as many miracles going on right now. But, but like, just like in the Bible, it wasn't really a miracle-rich environment. It isn't now either, right? Hmm. And so sometimes I think we think we're a lot more different. Like the Bible people have it better than us. And I don't really think that's true. They, most of them, I mean, the Old Testament, they didn't have Bibles. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I mean, imagine being, I mean, imagine being the Old Testament and you have a series of stories that people keep retelling to each other, but you don't have a Bible, anything like what we have now. Mm-hmm. You don't have the New Testament at all. You know, like this idea, Jesus, God, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, people who, who lived after the Exodus, but before the resurrection of Jesus lived in a similarly non-miraculous time as this. Right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that our pursuit of the fear of the Lord has to come from the, from faith and from what's revealed in the scriptures, what God has spoken and shown about himself in many ways. And most of those are available to us. In fact, I'd probably argue virtually all of them and more Mm -hmm. are available to us. Great. The last question we have, um, this is one of those questions that you could talk about for another 30 minutes, but I'm going to tell you to give us the 90 second version. Okay. Okay. What does walking in the true life of the spirit look like and feel like? What was the length of answer you were looking for? <laughs> Under two minutes. I'll be generous. Okay. So my answer to this is always read Romans 7 and 8 very carefully. Um, because that that's probably the, 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 the strongest, most clear, straightforward presentation of this as possible. And what, what Romans 7 says is that um, naturally what we do is we hope in our strength and we want to be better people, but we find that we're weak and wicked. Hmm. And and Paul labels that wretchedness, that we're not strong enough to do what we want to do, and we're not good enough to do what we want to do. And so what ends up happening is we can we get we get despairing, and so we try to come up with a way in which we can be successful. And the Apostle Paul calls that we, that we live by a kind of law of the spirit of death. That is, we like we kind of try to come up with rules or ways in which we can count ourselves successful by just coming up with a standard that doesn't really relate to anything real. And he says, what you have to do is you have to let all that go. The despair over your weakness, the despair over your weakness, and the, the a law you're trying to create for yourself, you have to let it all go. Mm-hmm. And you have to commit yourself to Christ, the crucified and risen King, and what he brings to you and into you, which he calls the law of the spirit of life. Mm-hmm. And the law of the spirit of life is basically trusting in Christ and in what he calls the law of love. That is that we do passionately what we believe is his will and that we do it believing that his spirit is in and with us in growing confidence and faith. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I mean, it gets more complicated than that, but not a lot. Right. You know? And so what it's supposed to feel like is a circumscribed freedom. Like in one sense, it's controlling of you and that it's like, it's, it's fitting you into a meaning that you are following and embracing and conforming to. And then, but then secondly, it's freeing you from all these things in wretchedness that used to make you a slave. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like coming out of slavery in which there was like debauchery, wickedness, and your whole life was getting used up and destroyed by signing up for the military and becoming a soldier for a really, really great cause. Like, you're not really more free in the most literal possible sense because now you're a conscripted soldier rather than a slave. Hmm. But your commanding officer cares about you. You're doing something incredibly important. You're doing something you would do for free as a free person, whereas when you were a slave, you wouldn't have done for free. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a completely different kind of relationship. But you are a servant of righteousness rather than a slave of death and sin, right? And that is, you're capable of that because of the spirit. Hmm. So, man, I don't, 
I don't know how to make it simpler than that or shorter. <laughs> well, but I think any Christian could spend a year just meditating on Romans 7 and 8. Yeah. I, I, I just, it, it's all right there. Mm-hmm. But it's not as easy to understand as sometimes people hope it will be. Yeah. But it is there and it's it's incredibly powerful in those two chapters. Right. Wasn't it Peter who said that Paul was hard to understand too? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he very well may have been thinking of Romans 7 when he said it. <laughs> Okay, great. So, um, Nick, we had discussed sort of three key things from your sermon that you wanted to expand on. Yeah. Do you still want to do all three of those right now? Let's do the first and the last. Okay. So Maybe just the first. Let's look at it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, how many minutes do you want me to give you for this? Uh, three-ish, maybe. Three minutes on clarifying the social responsibility of a watchman. Go. Yeah. Okay. So, in chapters 2 and 33 of... I'm sorry, 3 and 33 of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's called a watchman. And God says, okay, this is what a watchman is. If I send somebody to judge, if I send an army like to judge the city, and they're going to die, and you're the watchman, your job is to tell people and to warn them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you warn them, whatever happens to them is on their own head. If you don't, whatever happens to them is on their own head, but their blood is on your hands. Meaning that... What happens to somebody else is not our responsibility, but our responsibility to them is our responsibility, right? So like how my kids turn out isn't really my responsibility, but the responsibilities of a father to a child are my responsibility. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Similarly to my neighbor, my neighbor's life is their responsibility, but the responsibility of a neighbor to a neighbor from me is my responsibility. And so, so God has this way of saying that we're individuals and that we're all connected at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think Christians have to get that clear because some, because there's a certain kind of political conservatism or libertarianism in the world that tells us that we're all individuals. We should all get to be individuals and nobody should be able to coerce us to do anything. And what they mean by that without probably wanting to argue for it is I don't have any inherent responsibilities to others. Of course, God totally rejects that. Mm-hmm. We have inherent responsibilities we don't choose. And libertarianism doesn't do well with that, I don't think. But on the other hand, you have progressives out there who think everything that everybody has belongs to everybody else. So they can say, quote, in a wealthy society, everybody should get X. Well, wait, how is the society wealthy? The society's not wealthy. There's all these people in it that have different levels of wealth. In what sense is the society wealthy, right? And the answer is, it's not, right? And so, but the question is, what do we owe one another? And what God says is in this passage and others is he tries to help us understand that there are things we owe other people, even though their life is their responsibility. Mm-hmm. But our, what we owe them as an ally is our responsibility. Mm-hmm. And if you think clearly morally, you should be able to separate those two. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, And so I think that Christians need to work on this as we think politically, as we think in terms of loving our neighbors, as we think of how we use our time, who we give our time to, how much, how guilty we should feel about that or not. Right. I think we need to say, okay, like what does this other person deserve from me relative to all the other people who deserve something from me? And to what extent is this something their responsibility? To what extent do I have a responsibility to them in a certain way? And when you think that through, it really clarifies how we are both individuals and are judged as individuals. It says literally in chapter 33, I will judge each of you. God says his judgment for each person is individual. And yet he can say to a watchman, if you don't do your job to the other person, they'll die because of their iniquities, but I will count their blood on your hands. Mm-hmm. And so anytime a Christian says, I don't have a responsibility to these my neighbors or to the poor or to my enemies, they're wrong. 
they fall in too much into the, that libertarian mindset in that bad version of libertarianism. But whenever somebody says, well, we're all in this together, they're also wrong. Mm-hmm. We, we, we don't, we're not equally responsible for other people's lives, nor do we have to like, do, does, does what we have belong to them? Right. Other than to us knowing what our natural and spiritual relationships are in fulfilling the responsibilities built into those. And if Christians can think clearly about that, we won't get politically polarized. We'll treat our neighbors properly. We won't love our church over our family. We'll, I mean, we'll, we'll get so many things rightly ordered. And, but we'll also talk to our neighbors and people in our lives about God because we'll be a watchman for them. Because mm-hmm. we don't want their blood on our hands, even if they die for their own sins. Okay. Okay. Sorry. That was a little longer. But. It was almost four minutes, but not bad. Okay. You think we can do the second one? Um, yeah, I mean, the second one is just that God's Ezekiel thirty-three is a good place to have your finger when somebody thinks that God likes damning people. Hmm. The, I mean, this is a passage where God explicitly says, "I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked." Now, God is quote pleased in His own will, which includes the death of the wicked, but not because the wicked die. And some, I sometimes Calvinists or people struggling from the reform tradition because they've read like John Piper, where he says, God is all is always happy. He is pleased to do what he believes is right. He's always happy in that. He's always doing what he believes is best and is glad for it. That doesn't mean he likes every outcome. And so, yes, God is pleased to destroy the wicked in that he's pleased to do what's right, but he is not in any way pleased by the outcome of the destruction of the wicked. And that distinction can get lost on people. And when it gets lost, people think that God is happy to be cruel. And that's not true. So I think I, it, it seems like a very a very basic distinction, but it's a very important one. Mm-hmm. Good. Third and final, you wanted to elaborate on one of the categories you had in your sermon was about false listening based on um, – Chapter 33, yeah. verse 32. Yeah, I really do in a lot of ways like the new NIV version, new international version that we have in our pews. But in some places, I think it just gets the translation wrong. Both the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version, in that last verse in verse 32, um, tra- like the NIV translates it that people um, – hold on, I'm going to bring it up really quick here. It's, so the NIV says – Indeed, to them who are nothing more than one who sings love songs. That, see that word love there? Love songs with a beautiful voice and plays instruments well. The, the New, American Stand, New American Standard says this, And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on the instrument. Or the ESV, Behold, you are to them like one who sings lustfully or lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on the instrument. Now, the reason why the NIV translating it sings love songs as opposed to the other two saying singing lustful songs or singing in a lustful way, a song is because that word for devotion in Hebrew can mean either devotion, like a good devotion, like love or, or devotion that is visceral and fleshly and just sheer desire that is devouring. That is lust. And I think in this passage, the proper translation is the ESV of the NAS's translation, that that is the negative use of the word devotion and should be translated lust or like a devouring passion rather than a caring passion. And the, the reason why that's important is because when we listen falsely spiritually, it is, it is, it's lustful. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a fleshly, disgusting, it's not like, it's not love. It's not like, oh, it's not a nice love song, like a, like a good, a good country love song. No, it's like a club having sex with somebody behind a dumpster song. Hmm. And we listen to the, literally the word of God that way. That is, we listen to it with such a, like a lust for ourselves 
to justify, oh, there's going to be something in here where I can justify myself. There's going to be something in here to make me feel better. There's going to be something in here that I want that I'm just going to take and devour from God rather than God is going to speak to us out of love and demand from us in a good way and save, help, change, develop us. And we're not listening to anything like that. And we don't think that's the message in it. We just are like taking it like, like a lewd person to mm-hmm. quote language in other places in Ezekiel. And I think that that kind of stark translation captures the meaning of that verse better. And so if you're studying this passage this week, I just wanted to give you that exegetical or interpretational insight. Great. Thanks. Uh, that wraps up all that we wanted to get through today. So thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked it, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Share the episode with a friend. If you want to discuss, want to hear us discuss a specific topic, send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you have other questions generated by this or another episode, send it in. And yeah, I just can I just reiterate, yeah. Hannah. We re- listen. If you're a listener, we really want you to say, "Hey, listen, I'm out here in the worldly world, and I'm struggling with X. Like, right. like all these questions, like they're really hard for me. Listen, we are God's spoiled children who get to use our time to put together content to try to help and support you. This is for you. Mm-hmm. So please tell us the kind of stuff you want to hear about. Absolutely. And then we will see you in the next episode. Bye bye. to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equipment.